0: Well, oh, Good morning. It is so good to be with you and happy Valentine's weekend. Hope if you're married that you got to celebrate a little bit this weekend. Uh, I had a wonderful evening uh, last night, a lovely romantic evening out with my wife over a meal and my four-year-old son. That's as far as it went. And he looked at me like I was a spare wheel. Uh, <laughs> I hope, I hope you had a great time together. Uh, uh, welcome to all of you, no matter what venue you're at. Uh, we're delighted that you can worship with us and certainly gather now around God's Word together. So open God's Word, Luke chapter 23, the Gospel of Luke chapter 23, that's where we're heading. If you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, there's a, a Bible, a pew Bible available just under your seat. You can turn to page 884, please. 884. And of course, we're in our second of our seven series on seven words from the cross. As we head into Easter, we want to examine a little bit more closely seven statements that Jesus makes from the cross, significant words that He passes on because words matter. And final words certainly matter, especially if they're of someone important. I'm not talking about final words of just anyone. A lot of people uh, mutter a lot of nonsense uh, as they're moving on, uh, and certainly some of humanity's heroes haven't said anything that engaging in their final moments that passes on advice. I think of Elvis Presley. I was reading about him this week. His final words, quite anticlimactically, were... I'm going to the bathroom. That's maybe a little bit unfair. It was probably a little bit more engaging than that. I'm going to the bathroom. Uh-huh. <laughs> Doesn't do much for me, right? It's it's hardly life-altering, but the final words of Jesus, that's important. That really matters. That certainly matters. Even if you do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, history is split by His presence. We sequence our time by His life. His words matter. Today, we get front row seats on the most important scene in history, the cross of Jesus Christ. Front row seats. I mean, who doesn't want front row seats except in church usually, right? (laughs) We want front row seats everywhere except church, but we have front row seats today on the most important conversation... Recorded by Luke at the cross of Christ. Some of the most famous words penned in, in English literature come from the pen of Charles Dickens, particularly his Tale of Two Cities. It's, it's still the best selling novel in the English language, over two hundred million copies sold. And and part of the reason it's so significant is because of the way it starts. It sets before humanity, anybody who would read it, this massive contrast that is before us. Remember, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of folly. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of unbelief, and on it goes, setting up this contrast. Well, I think Dr. Luke gives Dickens a run for his money today and a tale of two criminals. Massive contrast that Luke sets before the cross of Christ between two individuals who were crucified with Jesus that Friday morning, one on each side of him. It's as close a scene as you're going to get in all of history and in the Scriptures at getting all of humanity on the front seat with Jesus Christ, at the cross of Jesus Christ. The Tale of Two Criminals is every human being's story. There's a reason that the criminals crucified each side of Jesus remain nameless. It's so that you insert your name into that scene. You're there. This is your story, your front row, on death row, contemplating the cross of Jesus Christ. The question is, which side of the cross are you on? That's that's what Luke is wanting to project your way today. What side of the cross of Jesus Christ are you on? It's, It's a scene of death, You know, every two seconds, someone dies. Every two seconds, your turn will come. Then what? The tale of two criminals is a serious warning. Be concerned is what Luke wants you to hear. But it's also a scene of hope. You know, we ask then what? Jesus answers, here's what. Here's what, potentially. Here's what. If you're on the right side of the cross, the tale of two criminals is is comfort. It's remarkable comfort. It's beautiful. So today I want to challenge you, all of you, whether you're a follower of Jesus Christ or not a follower of Jesus Christ just yet, I I want to change your mind on Jesus. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I want you to take comfort. I want you to face death, which is coming, remember, with, with the assurance that God has something better for you. And that's hard for us to grasp, but it is. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ personally today, I want to change your mind concerning Jesus Christ. And you can change your mind. All of us can change our minds when we're confronted with good news. Like the farmer who went to his Roman Catholic parish priest and he asked, you know, could you do a mass for my best friend Bob who passed away? He was my pet dog. The parish priest was taken back. Who does this guy think of that I am? And he said, you know, we don't do that sort of thing around here. We don't do services for, for dead animals, certainly not for dogs. But those Baptists down the road, they might. <laughs> so the farmer was heading out the door, and he was sad, and he looked back, and he said to the parish priest, sir, by the way, do you think $50,000 would be a nice enough of a donation to the Baptist down the street to do a service for my dead dog? The priest sort of turned around, snapped his neck right at him, and he said, hey, well, well, no, no, you did not tell me that that dog was a Roman Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> he changed his mind when confronted with some remarkable news, and we can do that. All of us can do that. I want all of us to do that today. So you have two criminals crucified each side of Jesus. Let's, let's look at the first one on the one side of Jesus, you have a criminal that represents rejection. That's what he represents, rejection. Many taunt Jesus. Society mocks Jesus. The history of humanity is a history of rejecting and ridiculing God. That's, that's the bottom line. And, and this individual there represents that, the scene that leads up to his words. His words are in verse 39. We'll get to them in a second. But the scene that leads up to his words begins in 32. You don't have to read it with me, but maybe jot some things down. It's a scene that drips with rejection and ridicule. Verse 33, we're told that they crucified Jesus Now, we're so familiar with the word crucifixion that we very quickly forget the significance of that form of execution. It's intentionally slow. It's intentionally a public display of mockery. It's designed by the Romans to proclaim to others, if you rebel against us, you end up like this guy. It, it, it drips with ridicule. We Humanity didn't just kill the Son of God. We crucified the Son of God. Such was our rejection. Verses 32 and 33, we look at the companions, right? I've mentioned them already. Jesus is crucified not with the brave and the honorable, but with two criminals, with the lawless, right in the middle of this shameful pair. Many of us believe that he probably took the place of Barsabbas. Remember the guy who was liberated by Pilate? These are violent insurrectionists. You don't want to die with this lot, and certainly not in that way. Verse 34 tells us that they plundered him. They divided, uh, they played a little game to see who would get his stuff While he hung there, they plundered the only stuff that he had left, his clothes. And then, of course, in verse 38, we read that they put a sign above his head, a sign that sarcastically mocked him, right? This is a king. Look what we do to kings. So the scene drips with ridicule and rejection. And then you've got all the voices that are there. Like Jesus has to listen to all the voices, essentially representative of all the pathways of rejection or perdition or lostness that, that one could imagine. It's, it's a spectrum, all different types of rejection, some mild, some more intense, but, but they're all the same. They're all rejection. I have that in your sermon notes for you. The first one is the passive watch in verse 35. This is just the general crowd who spectate. This is those who proverbially sit on the fence as it relates to Jesus. Many nice, many good people. Some perhaps very sympathetic to Jesus, but sympathy for Jesus doesn't save you. Pitying Jesus doesn't save you. Liking Jesus doesn't save you. Spectating Jesus doesn't save you. Voting for Christian values doesn't save you. Going to church doesn't save you. This is just, the passive general crowd that, that spectate in life on what Jesus is doing. Then you have in that same verse 35, the self-righteous and they sneer. That's, that's the rulers, right? That's the religious looters who have been uh, central to getting rid of Jesus. They, they believe that, that their good deeds merit them heaven. So what is the point of having a Messiah on a cross? There's no point. My good deeds get me to heaven. I, I can earn life with God. And that kind of mindset mocks Jesus on the cross. Like, get down from there. You don't need to be there. Have you seen how good I am? And then you have the ignorant, verses 36 and 37, who just mock. And the, these are the soldiers, right? They, they represent secular society in general, They've no thought for God, even though God is right there before them, but they've no thought for God. They're distracted by life, and they're ignorant of truth, and, and they're just having a little bit of harmless fun. Well, sympathy for Jesus doesn't save you, and good deeds don't save you, and certainly ignorance of Jesus doesn't excuse you before Jesus. We're all going to come before him one day and saying, I didn't know is not going to do anything for you. And then we have the front seat guy, criminal number one, verse 39, who represents the selfish, who, who disregard Jesus. Look at verse 39 with me. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. Some Christ you are. Some Messiah you are. He's he's all caught up in himself, and and Jesus hanging there doesn't have to just put up with all of that nonsense. He's to put up with this guy yakking on his ear. It's a guy who just cares about himself. If you're really God, you would fix my situation because that's that's why you exist to fix my situation it's a what can god do for me attitude to life my life wouldn't be like this if there was a god but it is like this therefore there isn't a god if you don't fix my life jesus then just you're not worth following drips with selfishness disregarding or using jesus for your own purposes, fashioning Jesus after your own mold doesn't save you. It makes a mockery of the Scriptures, of course, as well. So, the range of rejection is huge, from mild to very, very defiant in Dr. Luke's tale of two criminals. On that one side, front row, death row, right at the cross, we see humanity in flagrant rejection of God That's where we all start. It's where many of you have been and are no longer. It's where some of you still sit. But there's another side. Uh, Verses 40 to 42, another criminal. On the other side of Jesus, we see repentance. We see repentance. Some trust Jesus. Jesus is there to be trusted. Some turn to Jesus. Humanity can turn to Jesus Christ. The second criminal, we know from the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark, started out that morning hurling abuse at Jesus too, alongside of criminal number one. But as the morning unfolded, he changed his mind. He began to see that bloodied, bullied, beaten Jesus to be actually a king, the king. The eyes of his heart through faith were open to the fact that beyond the immediate, a kingdom is coming with a king, and it's him. It's him. Front row on death row, he begins to see Jesus for who he is. And facing death can focus your vision. It did for this guy. His turn, his two-second turn had come. Look at verse 40, but the other, that's the other criminal, rebuked him, that's the first criminal, saying, do you not fear God? Since you're under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. He said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom Jesus remember me Jesus remember me I has there ever been anything so meaningful said in three words Jesus remember me don't forget me I I I know my life has mocked you, but I now know who you are. My two-second turn is up, and I now see you for who you are. Remember me. It's, It's a cry of faith. This is a confession of faith. This is a turning to Jesus. This is what we call repentance. I love what a theologian pastor of over a hundred years ago, a guy called Alexander McLaren says, he says that faith has in it repentance, and repentance has in it faith. This is an expression in the only words available to this man that he's turning to Jesus Christ, that he believes, that he's sorry. And unlike the other criminal, he doesn't demand deliverance from his immediate situation. He knows that God owes him absolutely nothing, zero. God hasn't promised to fix this life for him. God is planning and preparing another life for him that's better. And so by faith, this man appeals to God's kindness, and kindness is precisely why Jesus hangs there. His words, this criminal's words, in one sense lay out a path of salvation, and again, that's in your sermon notes. Study that at home at some point if you have time. Please, collectively or combined an articulation of this man's faith. He rebukes sin, right? He says to the other criminal, don't you fear God? You're, You're about to meet Him. Don't you fear Him? There is a God to be feared. He rebukes sin, and he recognizes truth. I'm wrong, and you're wrong, and we deserve death, but he doesn't. And all I've heard in a few verses earlier is him say that he forgives. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. We we heard that last week. He offers forgiveness. He recognizes that truth, and of course, he finally makes his request of Jesus. Remember me. I believe in you. I want in. Uh, Luke's tale of two criminals has another beautiful side, front row, on death row, right at the cross, you can request salvation from God. It's beautiful. Massive contrast that Luke wants you to see, and of course, then in the middle, we have redemption. Redemption in the middle we have redemption, that Jesus saves those who trust in Him, those who believe in Him, those who repent, those who turn. It's the same thing. Jesus buys back. That's what redemption means. Redemption doesn't mean to buy. Redemption redemption means to buy back. God owned humanity in the first place. He's buying humanity back. He's getting what he rightfully owns. Listen to Jesus, verse 43. And he, that's Jesus, said to him, that's the the second criminal. He says, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Beautiful words. Where Jesus lays out the future of the saved. It's a promise of paradise, right? In the presence of Jesus, Jesus only lays out the next step, the next stage, the next abode for those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. He presents a promise. It's certain. It's going to happen. It's guaranteed. The phrase, truly I say to you, is in Greek, it's a man lego," which It's a set phrase, which essentially means, amen. (laughs) Jesus said, amen. Yes. Yes. It's certain. It's going to happen. It's a promise to be in the presence of Jesus. That's the phrase, today you will be with me. You're now mine. You belong to me because I, I hear your heart in those words that you've uttered. Remember me. I hear your heart. The phrase is not, truly I say to you today, just so that you understand grammatically. It's not, truly I say to you today. It's, truly I say to you, Set phrase, today you will be with me in paradise. And that makes sense. You know, of course Jesus is saying that to him today. The criminal would have picked up on that. Yes, you're speaking to me now. That's today. And that's in keeping with the rest of Scriptures. The rest of Scriptures teach that... Upon death, the believer is in the presence of the Lord. That while the body goes into the grave, the immaterial part of us goes to be with the Jesus. There's no soul sleep as it's referred to. The Apostle Paul, just to give you a few examples, you can jot these down and and look them up yourself. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8 says that to be absent from the body is to be present or to be at home with the Lord. For the believer to not be here is to be with him. Just in keeping with what Jesus is saying here today, you will be with me in paradise. Philippians 1.23 as well, Paul has been talking about how torn he is about whether he should stay in this life or go and be with the Lord, and he wants to go and be with the Lord, but there's, there's work to be done here. And so he says in verse 23, my desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. So Jesus lays out to this criminal uh, a promise uh, of life in his presence in a place he refers to as paradise paradise. And paradise is, is the next stage of the believer's life after death. It's, it's a heavenly abode where the righteous wait with Jesus for the next stage of God's unfolding plan, the kingdom that's going to come, which will then transcend that and move into the new heavens and the new earth. And, and the word paradise there, it's beautiful. It's, 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 it's a Persian loan word, which, which really literally means the garden. And of course, if you know your Scriptures, garden is a major way in which the Scriptures speak about where you and I were created to to live, the Garden of Eden, right? Genesis 1-2. And we're heading to a a, a new Jerusalem, which is a garden city, Revelation 21 and 22. It's, It's a place of beauty. It's a place of safety. It's a place of pleasure. It's a place of bliss. And I think with a little bit of rugby. Well, okay, I added that. I'm hoping a little bit of rugby. Maybe some rodeos for you Texans as well. That would be nice. It's a place that the Apostle Paul once again in 1 Corinthians 2 says it's indescribable and unimaginably wonderful. We're not just going to be up there floating around clouds singing songs. No offense, I like singing, but it will be more than that. The story is told of of Billy Graham arriving at a big city for a revival. Remember, Billy Graham, the revivalist, uh, he was walking down this street in this city, and he was looking for the post office, and he couldn't find it, so he saw a little boy in the corner, and he asked the little boy, you know, uh, young man, where's the post office? The little boy directed him on down the street and told him where to go, and that was great, Uh, And Dr. Graham said to the little boy, you know, uh, why don't you join us this evening for a revival meeting where I'm going to tell you how to get to heaven? Little boy looked at him and said, sir, why would I listen to you on how to get to heaven? You don't know where the post office is. (laughs) It's good. Jesus knows the way to heaven, to paradise. Jesus is the way to paradise. We can trust his directions of two sides of the cross and redemption in the middle so let me leave you with some words to live by It's, it's my plea not to the front rowers to all of you you're all front rowers in this scene a tale of two criminals is both a scene of comfort and a scene of concern it's potentially the best of times Potentially the worst. It is a tale of an era of wisdom. It is also a tale that depicts an era of absolute folly. It's a season for belief, and sadly for many, it's a season of epic rejection. What's it going to be? If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to take comfort from this scene. These are comforting words. Verse 43 is... Jesus' words for you. We don't need to live in fear of death. Uh, I understand why we do, but we don't need to live in the fear of death. That's why Jesus hangs there, to deal with death. What's coming is far better. I know some of you have loved ones there. I want you to know that they're with Christ. Take comfort in that. If you could see where they are at, you wouldn't want to bring them back. They're with him. Again, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, mind has not conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Paul's trying to, Paul, Here's what Paul's saying. I can't describe for you how blissful it's going to be. There's no words. You just have to trust. I think if only we knew what it would be like, we'd all want there instantly. But God has plans for us here now. That's why we're not there yet. The question for you as a believer in Jesus Christ is, are you living in those plans? C.S. Lewis, my fellow Ulsterman, uh, said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were those who thought most of the next world. And since Christians have largely ceased uh, to think of the other world, they have become ineffective in this world. If your eye is on then, you live here in light of then. If your eye is just on here, you live here just for here. Take comfort if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and then live today in light of tomorrow. God's got work for you to do. Of course, some of you should be concerned. The tale of two criminals that Luke lays out is a tale of concern. It should be uncomfortable for you, what I'm saying. And I'm not here to soften any blows. It is a warning. It is a massive caution Listen, both criminals had equal access to Jesus. Both read the sign above his head. Both heard his words. Both heard all of the words that had been uttered in his direction. And both started the day in chance, heading to the front row, on death row. But only one of them dined with Jesus in paradise that very evening. I don't know what pathway you're on. I don't know if you're sympathetic toward Jesus. I don't know if you're so good that you think that earns you access to heaven. I don't know if you're repeatedly ignoring Jesus and don't see the urgency. I don't know if you just disregard him because you want to live life and have some fun. I, I, I don't know which one on the spectrum you are, mild or defiant, lost. your second turn second two second turn's going to come and then you can take the path of salvation you can you can follow the advice of criminal number 2 if he can call out to Jesus hanging there you can call out to Jesus sitting there or at home or in your car you don't need to walk an aisle you don't need to come and talk to the pastor you don't need to go to church every week you don't need to write a poem You just need to believe. Three beautiful words. Jesus, remember me. Say it. Jesus, remember me. Don't forget me. If if it's said in faith, he knows how to interpret that. And if you do say it in faith, he says right back at you, you will be with me in paradise. That's great news. Some bad news, you get a whole bunch of us along with that package deal. (laughs) We're heading there too. In an Indiana cemetery, I read of a tombstone that's over 100 plus years old. And here's what it says on that tombstone. Pause, stranger, when you pass me by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. So prepare for death. And follow me. Some decades later, apparently someone wrote the following on it. To follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. (laughs) Your turn's coming. You can trust Jesus. We know where he went. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word that challenges us to make good decisions in life concerning your son. I'm grateful for those of us in this room who in some shape or form have said, to your son, remember us. But of course, Lord, I am aware that some here haven't. I ask that you would pursue them this week, that you would lead them to Christ, and that they would reach out to you by faith and receive your salvation.